Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like, where are you from? There was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina Lives. Episode 6, The Long Way Home Springtime comes to Fayetteville. While the daffodils bloom, tornadoes rustle up their restless spirits and parade up and down Tornado Alley, which is where we lived. They are powerful and destructive and can turn a beautiful day into a life-altering event. I didn't see it coming, and I had no idea it was brewing. Gorton and I were sitting on the front porch, enjoying a life that was bright and cheery. I was rocking in the rocking chair, and he was strumming on his guitar. As casual as the blue skies that turn orange with impending change, he asked me if I would like to move to Little Rock. I looked at him like he was crazy and went back to rocking in my chair without saying a word. He said, no, seriously, how would you like to move to Little Rock? Now I was getting mad. I had no idea where Little Rock was, but I sure as hell wasn't moving there. I let him know that he was really starting to annoy me, and if he was as smart as everyone said he was, he would just shut up. I was acting tough, but I felt the tumultuous wind of change rumbling up inside of me. The conversation flipped, and I was no longer in control. Gorton very apologetically told me that he needed to go to graduate school to get a degree in social work. He could only do that in Little Rock, and we had no choice but to move. I asked him if I could stay in Fayetteville and live with someone else. He looked hurt, which surprised me. He told me that Diana had entrusted only him to care for me. I thought that was a bunch of bullshit. Diana didn't give a damn about me or where I lived. She'd given me away to Gorton because he said yes, and he was someone that I had barely even known. What difference would it make if I stayed in Fayetteville? What did she care, and what did he care? He was my guardian, but not legally, and I felt disposable anyway. In this scenario, that was a good thing. Why not just leave me in Fayetteville? I had a village, right? Besides, I thought he'd be happy to get rid of me, considering how much trouble I was in. It had never occurred to me that Gorton took his guardianship role seriously. Someone, maybe Sue, told me that he even considered me to be his daughter, which made no sense. He had a biological son out there, so why not take him to Little Rock? Gorton asked for my opinion about a decision that had already been made, and I didn't want to be sent back to Diana, so I stopped being a brat and resigned myself to the fact that we were leaving Fayetteville. I knew in my heart that Little Rock was going to be bad, really bad. I could feel it the same way you feel the impending dread while watching the thick black shelf cloud 
roll from one end of town to the other. In protest, I ran away to Billy's house and stayed for a week. My emotions ranged between fire and ice, and I begged Billy's parents to adopt me. I think they considered it, but they were too poor, and my legal status was unclear. No one knew where I belonged, legally. Billy was my best friend, and I did not want to leave him or the fun that we had together. I trusted him like no one else, even when we made stupid decisions, like rock climbing down at the railroad tracks. It was stupid because he was short and squat, and I had boobs that were too big and deformed knees that wouldn't bend. Neither one of us was agile or strong, but hey, what the hell? We were brave and adventurous, and Billy thought some kamikaze action would be a good way to distract my mind from the troubles ahead. In order to get to the tracks, we had to cross a main water pipe that ran over a babbling brook. The distance between the pipe and the rocky bottom below was about 10 feet. The pipe was so wide, you couldn't get your arms around it. Some kids were brave enough to walk it, but Billy and I lay down on our bellies and scooted our way across. I had done this a million times before, and I knew the pipe like the back of my hand. But every time I got to the middle, my heart would start palpitating, my palms would get sweaty, and strange prayers to some mysterious god would seep out of my mouth. I grunted, groaned, and whimpered because I thought I was going to die. Every single time. But the terror of it was really the fun of it. Once we got over the pipe, we had to grab some earth and rock and climb up about two feet to get to the top of a ridge. We sat there for a while, huffing and puffing, while I tried to get my legs and arms to stop shaking. Between the rattled inhales and exhales of our lungs, we listened for a train. When the coast was clear, we got on our hands and knees and threw our legs over the side of the cliff. Like true mountaineers, we proceeded down the 90-degree angle of loose rock and dirt. Billy mostly slid and then jumped the rest of the way. For him, it was a soft landing. For me, jumping was not an option. I moved slowly and cautiously, trying to be a good rock climber, but halfway down, I simultaneously froze and trembled with fear. I was stuck. On one of the hottest days of the year, I turned into a shivering ice statue and in the quivering inertia, I became consumed by the notion that a train was coming. I could swear I heard it rumbling and whistling down the tracks, and it was inevitable, I thought, that I would fall and be crushed by 10 tons of racing steel. Billy was such a good friend that once he finished laughing his ass off, he tried to guide me down by using the most instructional phrases he could think of. Don't be a sissy. Jump. 
What the hell are you waiting for? What's wrong with you? Hurry up before a train comes. I begged him to go get Sue in a ladder, and just uttering the words advanced an avalanche that loosened my fingers from their grip and sent me sliding. I pressed my whole body into the embankment, leaving my chin to take the brunt of the fall. I fell fast, desperately trying to grab a hold of something on my way down. Once I hit the bottom, my toes smashed against the railroad tracks, and I had dirt in my eyes, dirt in my mouth, and rocks embedded in my chin. I stood up shaking from head to toe like jello, but out of instinct and preservation, I took off running. I could swear that I heard that train a-coming. When I felt a safe distance away from the point of impact, I looked up to the top of the ridge and felt a cold chill run down my body. Billy and I were definitely crazy and possibly insane. My best friend's roly-poly belly heaved up and down in fits of laughter as we walked home side by side, slowly down the tracks, taking the long way home. June. There was a silver lining to my dark cloud of pain. Gorton had successfully talked Sue into moving to Little Rock with us. She hated the idea of leaving Fayetteville just as much as I did, but her destiny was truly calling. Fayetteville was overrun with young hippies her age, and the employment opportunities were limited. Real-life realities and the march of history were creeping into our small town, and our little paradise of love and rebellion was disintegrating. The saddest news of all was that it was time for the hippies to grow up. Gorton was such a pillar of society that there must have been a going-away party, but I don't remember one. I spent the last days of my most beautiful life curled up in a ball, hiding in a castle where nothing got in and nothing got out except 40,000 headmen and the low spark of high-heeled boys. On the morning of our departure, I watched from a distance as two people who so epitomized the style and sentiment of their generation worked without smiles packing up the old Volvo station wagon. In a last-ditch effort to free my fate, I ran away again. I darted in and out of the bushes, snuck around people's backyards, and made it all the way to the top of Cleveland Street, where Dan the drummer lived. I had never been to his house before, and at first he was surprised to see me, but when I told him it was moving day, I saw the compassion run across his face. He tried his best to give me a pep talk, 
but I was so distracted by his good looks that I didn't hear a word he said. I asked him if he wanted to adopt me so that I could stay in Fayetteville. I really wanted him to marry me, but I thought that was too much to ask. I could tell that my question made him uncomfortable because he stared at a dust bunny in the corner, let out a nervous laugh, and then made his way to the kitchen for a cup of tea. I regretted asking such a stupid question. I didn't want my last minutes with Dan to be a bummer. It was Sue who showed up to get me. He must have called her while making his tea. She didn't look mad. She looked sad. Some words were spoken, but none that gave any indication that I would be staying, so I quit listening. We stepped out onto Dan's front porch, and he gave me the kind of goodbye hug that a young girl holds on to for as long as humanly possible. When he let go, I looked across the street at my elementary school, Leverett. I liked it there. And for the most part, I had had fun. I learned to play tetherball and foursquare and joined the brownies for about a week. I got to leave the classroom on Thursdays because they said I needed a speech class. It never got in my way, but according to them, I didn't make the TH sound correctly. It didn't matter to me how I made the TH sound, but I did enjoy the special attention. Sue and I stepped off the front porch and took our last walk down a very steep hill called Cleveland Street. The early afternoon humidity was building with slow draw intensity, and my eyes welled and blurred like a Vaseline-smeared lens. My stomach was twisting in knots of anger, and I refused to say goodbye to a town and a life that I loved so very much. I felt like Peter the MC must have on the day of the way it is benefit, morose, and yet I wanted to scream out loud for all the world to hear. We can't leave Fayetteville. It's a big mistake, and you're all assholes for making me go. But I kept it to myself. The minute I crawled into the back seat of the overstuffed Volvo, my whole world shifted. All of a sudden, Cleveland Street House was unfamiliar, like I had never even lived there. What had once appeared to be a big and happy home now looked small and defeated, as if it had never seen all those good times. It looked like someone had sucked the air right out of it, and now it was going to implode and crumble in on itself. How would Cleveland Street survive without us? As we drove very slowly by Billy's house so that I could say goodbye, I was surprised by how run down and junky it was. I had never noticed that before. It had always been such a wonderland to me. Mm -hmm.